So John wrote his gospel around 95 AD, and he writes it from Ephesus. Now, obviously, Ephesus is not where he was from, but John outlived all the other apostles, lived to be a very old man, lived to write the book of Revelation or dictate the book of Revelation according to my view of things, and I recognize uh, uh, that I ascribe to a certain set of scholars and agree with them. There are other scholars who view things differently, and, and uh, we'll discuss those views later. But for our purposes right now, I'm just telling you what early church history has. So we can put up here Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, Lyon, is, Lyon, France is the town that's still there. At the time, it was Lugdunum, Gaul. It's just on the other side of the Alps from Italy. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon, or Lugdunum, and in 175, we talked last week about him quoting the disciple of John the Apostle. The disciple of John the Apostle Polycarp, who was also someone that Irenaeus knew firsthand as a young boy. From there we got afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who'd also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So that's where he came from. He published it. Now, here's an interesting side fact. If I were to ask you, where is the oldest copy of even a fragment of Scripture that's still around today? You know, we don't have the originals. A lot of them were written on paper that just in the atmosphere and, and in the moist Mediterranean world uh, dissolves and disintegrates. Of course, scriptures were burned along with Christians for centuries. It's quite remarkable that we've got anything old at all. But the oldest fragment that we know of right now that we've got is a fragment from the Gospel of John. It's called the John Rylands Fragment, or P52, because it's a parchment fragment, and it's number 52 in the numbering system that scholars use. If you ever get over to England, you need to make a trip to see it. It's got front and back writing. So if you look at the picture I've put up here, that picture shows the front and the back. It's the best one I could pull off the internet. Whoever put it together may not have read Greek, because if you're looking at it, the first part is on the right, and maybe they were just doing it from Hebrew perspective, but, but it should be flipped in order, okay? The, the, it's from John chapter 18, and in fact, you can look right here, and this is where Jesus is having the confrontation with Pilate, and he's asking Pilate, uh, 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 are telling Pilate about the truth of who he is, and Pilate says, what is truth? Well, the, this isn't the what is truth, but it's the truth right before it. You can see the way the A is written. You can see the way the L or the, the, the lambda is written. You can see the way the eta is written, almost more like an H. You can see the theta, which is the zero with a belt. And you can see a little bit of the epsilon there, the E. And that is the word for truth. And uh, uh, the, what scholars do is they look at the way the letters are made. And they date the fragment off of that. Because they wrote letters differently at different times. And that A is very typical. And that L and the eta, the H, or what looks like an N to us, 
All of those are letters that help them understand that this was probably written sometime during the reign of Hadrian or a little before. So they're able to date it around 110. This says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's the hears. The, the, I mean, the truth is the, the alithe. It's the, the word that you see there. So anyway, now, oh, wait, let's go back for a minute. This was discovered down in Onkirinkus, Egypt, which is down in the southern part of, of uh, the delta of Egypt, where it stays dry. But it's rather remarkable, if we just go back to the first map, that something written in 95 AD, a copy of it, is down in Egypt within 15 years of being written. I had a chance to speak this week at uh, Duke's Divinity School, and one of the people who was in the speech was giving me a tour of the library afterwards, and she is the uh, John specialist. And so I was talking to her. In fact, I didn't realize she was going to be in the lecture, and, and the lecture I gave was on how to teach a Bible study. And uh, it's, it's off of this class that, that I'd been asked to go out there in the sense that they're tuned into this class over there. So I had a chance to do it. And uh, I did not know that one of the women in there was uh, uh, a John specialist, Ph.D. in John. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to teach them, I'll just show them what we're doing. So I gave the handout that we did last Sunday to everybody who was attending the lecture. And I put up a couple of the slides to show what we do. And uh, afterwards, this uh, very kind uh, uh, lady is giving me this tour of the library with uh, the, the dean there. And, and, and the, I go into her office and I see like 50 rows of John books. I said, ah, you like John? Well, that's my specialty. I said, oh, and I handed out a John. Hand-. She said, well, actually, I flipped through it. It was really good. So uh, uh, I thought, Whew. But I said to her, I said, well, I'm going to tell them about the Rylands fragment. When do you date it? She says, it's 110. It's 110. Date it 110. So uh, within 15 years, this fragment shows up. Now, that's a fragment we've got. That tells you this gospel was floating around a whole lot of places. If there's still a fragment that's left, that's actually been discovered in the 20th century. So we've got that. It's a wonderful piece. By the way, it also holds out how accurate our Bibles have been because that Greek is the same Greek you would find in the Greek version of the New Testament today. And uh, just as an aside, we talked last week and talked about the fact that because John wrote his gospel late, there's a measure of depth and perspective that John had having reflected on the gospel and lived with the gospel and taught the gospel for decades beyond when the earlier gospels were written. So the earlier gospels were gospels that, that, that were wonderfully, marvelously written, inspired by God, that, that teach us very important truths worthy of great study. But the gospel of John just has a whole different flavor to it. You see it in the structure. We talked about that last week, how the synoptics seem to be driving Jesus to Jerusalem. He starts out in Galilee, and then he goes en route into to Samaria and Judea, and then to Jerusalem, and then to Calvary. John's very different. We talked about him as a hopscotch gospel. He starts out Galilee, chapter 2. He goes to Jerusalem. Then he goes back to Galilee. Then he goes back to Jerusalem. Then he goes back to Galilee, to Jerusalem, and then to Calvary. 
So John will talk about three Passovers, whereas the other Gospels only talk about the last Passover Jesus had right before the crucifixion. Because John's got Jesus going to Jerusalem multiple times, fills out the story with extra material that he thought might be useful. It's some of the reason the early church said that John was asked to, to, it says two things. It says he was implored by his disciples to record some of this, and he was inspired by the Spirit for the same purpose. And so that's what John did. So John writes, as Clement from Alexandria, this is also in Egypt. Clement says, John, last of all, perceiving the external facts had been made plain in the gospel. That means the three synoptic gospels. Being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. Now, Clement of Alexandria, if you remember your church history, Alexandria was really big on seeing things, um, uh, there was an entire school that actually precedes the Christian school, goes back to the Jewish fellow named Philo, but um, that looked at the Bible very allegorically. And so John's someone whose gospel has, for Clement at least, this designation of spiritual in the sense that it's a gospel of, of of some unique flavor beyond the, the, the synoptics. And we don't know exactly what he means by spiritual, but it just tells you it's a little different gospel. And so that's the way we've started out. Last week I told you the main thing we want to do through this lesson or look at some Hebrew themes in the gospel of John. So we started out last week, we looked at the themes of creation, how it says in the beginning, how there are seven miracles or signs to mirror the seven days of creation, that after those you have Jesus being mistaken for a gardener, much like Adam uh, was a gardener after the seven days of creation. You've got the tabernacle theme, we looked at that from John 1.14 where it says the word became flesh and dwelt or pitched its tent among us. Now we're going to see a little bit more of that idea coming up. But for right now, just recognize and remember that uh, uh, the idea that, that Jesus dwelt among us in John 1.14, that the word dwelt among us means that it tabernacled among us. And then last but not least, we looked last week at some comparisons and, and some contrasts and some, some uh, uh, running commentary on Jesus compared to Moses. Now, we've done catch up. We're going to talk about new stuff. So if you've fallen asleep or if you weren't paying attention because I went through it too fast, wake up, give me another shot. New material. And we'll go slower. There's an entire bread of life discourse in John chapter 6 that I've written about in your lesson, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with. We're going to let you read that as opposed to me going through it. But I'll just give you some reminders. When the Jews were wandering in the wilderness, they were hungry. They needed some food. They got manna. Manna came from where? Heaven. You're better than some of the Jews at the time of Jesus. Because some of the Jews at the time of Jesus said, Moses gave our fathers manna and bread. Jesus had to correct them. And Jesus corrects them and then explains 
that Jesus is the bread of life. An eternal bread. Jesus can not only feed the 5,000, which, by the way, feeding the masses is the only miracle talked about in all four Gospels. It's important for John to bring it back in, even though it's already in the other Gospels and it's not a supplement, because it makes John's point about Jesus being the bread of life, not just a physical food, but the food that truly will... uh, uh, um, the food that feeds us for eternity. It is, it is the fact that we partake of the body of Christ that we have eternal life. And so that's something that John puts back in there and explains. A sec, uh, I mean, a fifth theme, Hebrew theme in the, Gospels of, the Gospel of John, concerned festivals. Now, the first festival that, that really jumps out at you is the festival of Passover. And the Passover festival, in John gives three different Passovers Jesus celebrates. We will be celebrating the Passover here. The Passover that we're celebrating here is going to be on the actual day of Passover. So I'm going to save that lesson for another time. We're not going into Passover right now. I want to talk to you instead about Sukkot. A lot of us in this room know what Sukkot is, and a lot of us in this room don't have a clue. So let's just take a moment, because there are a couple of things very important about it. Sukkot is a, a Sukkot, a, a sukkah is, Sukkot is plural, a sukkah is a, a tent, or a lean-to, almost. Don't think like pup tent, think like a lean-to. Think like stringing a string between two trees and leaning some corn stalks up against it. It's also called the Feast of the Ingathering, if you're looking through the Old Testament. The idea of this feast was, while the Israelites were moving from Egypt and bondage into the Promised Land, they traveled in tents. They were a nomadic people. And so this festival was set aside by Moses as a time to recognize that in the process of nomading, God provided for them and they relied upon him for that provision, knowing that this was a temporary home and they were headed somewhere else. And it's something they should never forget and they were told to celebrate every year. Because of the time of year they celebrated it, It also was at the time of harvest. So it was a time of recognizing the way God provided every year through the crops. During the Sukkot celebration, and still today during Sukkot, good practicing Jews will build some type of an outdoor pavilion or an outdoor tent or an outdoor lean-to. It's basically going to be some type of a, a little sitting area where you can have a meal. And the family will do it. And they will eat outside remembering what God did. Now, by the time of Jesus, this is celebrated beyond simply that. There's a temple celebration for the holiday with temple sacrifices. And one of the things that was done is there was a reading out of Zechariah. 
Now, it's important for you to know this, and it's important for you to follow this if you're going to understand what happens with Jesus in John's gospel. So let's start out, and let's get that reading out of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14 is what would be read. The idea in Zechariah 14 is that the Messiah is going to come. And the Jewish tradition was that the Messiah would come during Sukkot. There are a lot of believers who still think today the second coming of Christ will be during Sukkot. I don't have a clue. I'll tell you after it happens what my opinion was. Um, the coming of the day of the Lord. This is a, a, you can see some of why Zechariah 14 would be read. Because when the Lord's day comes, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths, Booths, Tents, Sukkot. That's another name for it. So this is what was read. Now, when this is read, it's read in anticipation that the Messiah will come. Sukkot becomes a festival in anticipation of the Messiah. And so the passages that are read among the people with trumpets that blast to proclaim each of these passages. There's a trumpet blast as Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord Yahweh, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. There'll be light in the midst of the evening, in the midst of darkness. Trumpet blast. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, both directions. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Trumpet blast. This is the festival. This is the reading that's happening in John 7 when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of the Ingathering. So if we go to John and we start to look in John chapter 7, we'll follow this along. John's explaining this to the people. Jesus is going about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, The Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So John set the stage. Feast of Booths at hand. It's coming. Jesus' brothers say, hey, why don't you head down there to Jerusalem? Not very nice brothers if the reason he can't go is people are looking to kill him. I might also add that the brothers, John points out, at the time do not believe Jesus is anything. He says... uh, 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 for not even his brothers believed in him. 
So the brothers don't believe in him. They're willing to send Jesus off to where, if not killed, at least roughed up. Put a little modesty in the man. By the way, after the resurrection, make sure we all know our church history. The brothers not only believed, but gave their lives as martyrs in their belief. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. They're saying, hey, where is he? There was a lot of muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They kept it kind of hush-hush. They didn't talk in front of the power structure of the Jews. About the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple and begins teaching. The Jews marveled. They're saying, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? Jesus says, my teaching's not mine. My teaching is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching's from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Okay? With me so far. What happens at this feast? Trumpet blast. Zechariah 14. Red. And so we have Jesus. And Jesus says, Ah. John 7, 37. Let's keep going. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the day of the temple celebration, the day of the trumpets, the day of the reading of Zechariah 14, Jesus stands up and cries out. He's no longer silent. He's no longer talking. He's loudly proclaiming, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the Zechariah passage gets read. On that day, whoops, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Not just from Jerusalem, Jesus says, but from me in Jerusalem. It's making a pretty strong and bold statement there. It's making a strong claim to be Messiah. Living waters shall flow. Now, if you're reading this, the people hear these words and they react appropriately. Some of them say, Hey, this is the prophet. Maybe this is Zechariah. Maybe it's the prophet that's supposed to come that Moses talks about. Others said, this is the Messiah. Then they have this big fuss, says, yeah, but he just came in from Galilee. Messiah's not supposed to come from Galilee. He's supposed to come from Nazareth. Not realizing that that's where Jesus was born, Bethlehem. The village where David was. So the people are fussing back and forth. The chief priests and the officers and the Pharisees, they say, why hasn't anybody arrested this fella? Why doesn't someone grab him? And then there's this little insert in John. We've talked about it before. It probably wasn't in John's original. The woman who's caught in adultery we'll discuss, don't, don't say, oh no, we just said the Bible's wrong. Now, we, we've talked about it before, we'll talk about it again, we just don't have time to talk about it right now. 
But this is one of the reasons that scholars can readily say this is an insert. Jesus is in the middle of this celebration. And he proclaims as the trumpet blasts and Zechariah is read. And out of Jerusalem shall come living water. He says, out of me shall flow living water. Then take that, uh, here, let's do it this way. You can kind of see how it works. So, starting right here is this, uh, each went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. And that's where he has all of the encounter with the woman caught in adultery. Okay? Just take that part out and pretend it's not there for right now. And if you pretend it's not there for right now, you're back to this storyline. So they're having a fuss about whether or not they should arrest Jesus because of the claim he's making. And then they don't arrest him, but Jesus keeps making claims. The claims continue. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Go back to Zechariah. What is Jesus talking about? There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at even time there shall be light. Jesus, trumpet blast. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. It is a different kind of light. It's not day or night light. This is the light that will shine for all mankind. This is the light of the nations. This is the light of the world. This is what allows you to see truth and reality. Can I get on a soapbox for just a minute? I'm absolutely convinced that Christianity gives the true truth about our world. I'm absolutely convinced that Christianity truly explains why we are the way we are. Why the world is the way the world is. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ has shined a light that if people will open their eyes and see that light, it will illuminate all aspects of the world. It makes sense of everything in the world. It makes sense of evil. It makes sense of pain. It makes sense of love. It makes sense of law. It makes sense of meaning. It makes sense of longing. It makes sense of beauty. It shines a light that makes sense of who we are, who he is, and what he's done to restore us from this ruddy situation we're in. That's the kind of light that Zechariah was prophesying. Zechariah, the, the, the name of that prophet, Zachar, remembers. Yah, Yahweh, Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. And he kept that promise. And that promise was kept in Jesus Christ. And John makes that point, and he makes that point very clearly. Sukkot. Okay. You ready to uh, move on? PowerPoint. Thank you. Sukkot. So we've got Sukkot and John tracks it. It's this Hebrew theme. You see it. He does it with other themes too. He does it with the Passovers and all the rest. 
But I want to change themes and I want to really spend some time talking about this one. John has a theme in his book that's the most prolific theme of any that we've discussed yet in my mind. And that is the theme of the name of God. I am. The name of God. I am. Now, I need class participation for just a moment. You need to learn a Greek phrase. Here it is. I've put it in the way you'd pronounce it. Then I've put it in Greek. And then I've put it in an English set transliterated. English set of Greek letters. It said, ego, like Lego my ego. Ego, Amy. I want you to say it with me. Ego, Amy. Now what you've just said, it's one of two Greek phrases for I am. You can also say ho own for I am. But the full way of saying I am with the verb to be in it is ego, Amy. Ego, Amy. I am. Okay, we're about to spend some Elmo time. I hope it does not bother y'all for me to be here, but this is what it's about today. I could put it on a PowerPoint slide, but I want you to see the words, okay? Ego Amy. Let me show you where John was getting his Ego Amy from, okay? Before we get to John, let's get Hebrewed up. You're saying, wait a minute, ego eimi is Greek, not Hebrew. True. But John's writing in Greek. So John has already done the job of translating Jesus' conversations from Hebrew, Aramaic, into Greek. The Old Testament had already been translated from Hebrew into Greek. So I'm going to show you Old Testament passages that have ego Amy in them. In the Greek version of the Old Testament that was around at John's day. Moses goes to God at the burning bush. The bush is burning. Moses goes to check it out. And Moses hears, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And Moses hears, Don't come near until you take the sandals off your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. Then Moses hears this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. I am. How do you say that in Greek? Ego eimi. Ego eimi. I am. I am. Now, he's not simply saying, hey, I'm this. He's making a proclamation of ego eimi, the I am. You see, what's going to happen here is Moses is going to be told to go get the people. Moses is going to say, well, what's the... They're going to ask which God sent me. What's your name? What name should I give them? And in verse 14, we read this. 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is in response to what is his name? What shall I say? You say to them, Ego a me, ho on. I am who I am. Ego a me. We get Yahweh from that. The name of God is Yahweh from the Hebrew. But from the Greek, if you want to say it, you don't say Yahweh, you say Ego a me. I am. And God uses it. And God uses it over and over and over. Ego a me. Moses goes back before Pharaoh. The Egyptians shall know that ego a me. Kurios. I am Yahweh. Ego a me. Kurios. Now the Greek translates Lord as kurios, which just means that's just the title for any lord. That'd be the title for your master, lord. The translation gist of this is the ego a me, the I am. That's the name of God. I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel. Where else is he? He says... Um, In chapter 8, verse 22, On that day I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that ego a me, Yahweh, in the midst of the earth. Ego a me, the name of God. And you get it over and over and over again. I will, this is right before the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians will know that ego a me is Yahweh. That I am is your God. And they did so. Whoa, sorry. That ego a me, I am, is Yahweh. Keeps going. The Egyptians shall know. That ego a me Yahweh, when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know. The name of God is I am. God is the present tense. God is always. There's never a time where he's not. God is the constant. God is always there. And God says it over and over and over again. And I'll keep going, but I don't want to because I'm going to run out of time. Just one last one. How about the Ten Commandments? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land, out of the house of slavery. I am, ego a me, Yahweh. Don't take I am in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't ever think God can't be there and do that because he is. He is right now. He is every day. He is everywhere. He's the great I am. You with me? Okay, now you're Hebrewed up. Now we go to John. We're in John chapter 8. Look what Jesus says. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that ego a me, 
you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am ego a me. That I am he. Unless you believe that Jesus Christ is Yahweh God. You will die in your sins. Just as surely as a Jew who did not believe that God was calling them forth and chose to stay in Egypt would die in Egypt. Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am He. Ego me. I am he. I don't do anything on my own authority. I speak as the Father has taught me. Ego a me. I am he. How about this one over here? By the way, did you know to the Jews it was blasphemy to even say the name of God? If we go back to the PowerPoint for just a moment. Ooh, I've got to keep moving. If we go to the PowerPoint for just a moment, please. I am. I put up two pictures of Dead Sea Scrolls from the time of Christ. That top one, you see the four dots in there? That's where ego a me should be in Hebrew. That's where Yahweh belongs in that passage. But the Jews wouldn't even write the name out, much less say it, because it's blasphemous. So they put four dots there for each of the four letters of Yahweh. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Dot, 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 dot. So they didn't have to, to blaspheme by even writing his name, much less saying it. Now, in the one and below, they've written his name. It's in the middle column, the last four letters to your left. But if those four letters, if you stare at them long enough, they look very different than the letters up above them. And the reason why is because it's written in an 800-year-old Hebrew script there at the time. In other words, they used an entirely different alphabet. They used the alphabet they think would have been used at the time of Moses. It'd be like if you wanted to write King James in King James print, you might do one of those real goofy flowery things. Because of the holiness of the name of God. So you don't just say it. You say it, you get stoned. Go back to the power, uh, Elmo, please. So... Here, the Jews are saying, um, aren't we right saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Jesus says, no, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. You're dishonoring me. Then the Jews say to him, oh, we know you've got a demon. Because you're talking about Abraham and you. And Abraham died, the prophets. And you says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. So you've got to be demon-filled. Jesus says, uh, or then they continue, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? Oh, they're grilling him. Jesus answers, if I glorify myself, my glory's nothing. It's my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you don't know him. I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, then I'd be a liar, but like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now the Jews think he's really nutso. They said, hey, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, Ego me, Yahweh. Jesus said the name of God. And they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. The whole point of this is Jesus saying, before Abraham was, ego me. Yahweh was before Abraham. Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. This is my day. Abraham, don't say, oh, you're not 50 years old. Ego me. And he says the name of God. You know, John gives us this in multiple times. Um, there are four where Jesus just says it very directly. Ego me. I am. And and one time, the, the translators add some words at the end to make it read better. Because it's kind of like, I am, you, you're, you're what? But in the original Greek, John doesn't add anything afterwards. It's just, I am. Boom. I am. End of sentence. Done. Now, in addition to that, there are some other passages where Jesus adds who the I am is. I don't have time to put them up because we're running out of time, but I'll give you seven of them. Ego me, the bread of life. Yahweh, Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh, the bread of life. That bread that you thought Moses gave you didn't come from Moses. It came from Yahweh, and I am the bread of life. Yahweh gave you me because I am Yahweh. Then he says, ego me, the light of the world. Sukkot, ego me, the light of the world. Yahweh is that light. Jesus is that light. Ego me, the door. You want out of your sin? It's the door through Yahweh. Ego me. The door that at Passover had the lamb's blood all over it. Ego me, the good shepherd. Ego me, the resurrection and the life. Ego me, the way, the truth, and the life. Ego me, the vine, and you're the branch. All of those are Jesus saying, I am. Ego me. I'm the name of God. I am God. I am Yahweh God. The idea that Jesus never makes claims of divinity is absurd to anyone who understands what John's writing about. Because Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh God. And sometimes we get so divided up in the Trinity, we forget that God is one. And Jesus the Son is Yahweh God. Jesus comes so that people would know ego a me. They would know God. They would know the name of God. And John makes this clear as well. John says to them, look at John 5. Don't think I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. Moses is the one who wrote about Jesus. Look what he says it in reference to, though. 
He says it in reference to this. I have come in my Father's name. What's the name of God? Ego me. I've come in my Father's name. I have come and you're not receiving me. If someone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. But I've come in the name of the Father. Look what Jesus prays before his death. Praise to God the Father. I have manifested your name. Ego me. Moses, what's the name of God? Ego me. Jesus, I am ego me. Jesus praying before he dies. I have manifested your ego me, your name. I have shown them the great I am. Because I am he. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me. Look what else he prays in this prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me. The name of God, the ego me, God gave to Jesus. It was Jesus' name as well. Jesus makes a strong claim of divinity. Jesus says in the prayer later on, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. The name of God, ego me, the one who is. Um, it's, there are more examples, but that gives you a good flavor. John's writing a gospel that as we understand the Hebrew flavor really brings us into the holy presence of the ego me, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, God. Points for home. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now Jesus clears out the temple during a Passover. John's the only one, only in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is cleansing the temple, does John provide us the detail that Jesus also threw out the animals for sacrifice. So there'd be no doubt who was left in that temple when Jesus spoke of the sacrifice, destroy the temple. Jesus is the right sacrifice. He fulfills that. He's the ego me. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Be stunned by the reality. Don't lose track of it. Be stunned. Let me go back to that. Be stunned by the reality. Be stunned by the reality. Jesus Christ was resurrected. Now, let's go to the next point for home. Ego me, the good shepherd. Ego me, the good shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? Jesus. Who's ego me? Jesus. Ego me in the burning bush? Jesus. Yahweh God? Jesus. There is one God. Ego me, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Don't just be stunned at the reality, but be touched by it. Because the ego me, the great I am, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, became human and died at the hands of evil and wicked and stupid, ignorant people. Of whom we should number ourselves because he's dying for our sins. But he's the light of the world that can enlighten us to the truth of what he's done. And it should move us because he's only done it because he loves us. 
and he wants to be with us. That's it. Let's be touched by the reality. And then the last point for home. Ego me the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to live in that reality. I want to not just be stunned by the fact that ego me came, died, was resurrected for me. I want to be touched by it, but I want to live in it. I want to bear fruit. I want people to see my life and say, there is something different about him. Oh, they're still going to see my junk. But I hope they see less and less of it every day. Because I want them to see that God is at work in my life. And then, then let that light so shine where they say, what is it that makes your world different? Ego a me. There is someone who is in me. Who is beyond me. Who made me and who cares for me so much. And I'm going to spend eternity with him. And he's enlightened me to this because he's the light of the world. Not like this stuff, but the real light that's opened my eyes to see. And it's changed who I am and it's changed what I do. And he would love to know who you are too. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we don't understand the depths of the Trinity. We don't understand the depths of who you are. How could we fathom you in our little brains? But Father, we do readily confess that you are God. That you loved us so much. That you gave yourself of, up for us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, Lord. Your love and your devotion for us, may it woo us. We pray for our eyes and our hearts to be enlightened, for us to see more clearly what you've done. To be amazed, to be receptive, to be touched, and to be changed by the great I Am. We pray in the name of Jesus, the great I am. Amen.